Hebrews chapter number 12. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse 13, then we'll have a word of prayer. And I want to share a few thoughts the Lord laid on my heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Let's stop and pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God tonight. Thank you that we can come and gather around your word. Lord, it's not a puzzle book. It's not a mystery book, Lord, but we can come and we can glean and and learn of you. And, Lord, you instruct our lives. And the sweet Holy Spirit takes the word of God and wields it as his sword to to work and to move in our hearts and minds and to deal with us directly about what we're going through. I pray, Lord, that tonight that you would have the preeminence in the preaching. And, Lord, that we'd be obedient and receptive to your word. I pray for these requests that have been given, Lord, that you'd meet with them according to thy will Lord, we know you're faithful. We can trust you with these matters. But, Lord, our flesh never wants to trust you. Give us patience and give us faith, Lord. Give us give us patience to see it through. Help us to let patience have her perfect work in our lives. Lord, help us to trust you in the outcome of these things. Lord, the things that were mentioned, even the few that we had, are too many to mention in this moment. But, Lord, you know every single one of them, and I pray that you'd minister your will in these matters Lord, I pray you'd help us tonight as we approach your word. Lord, help us to to be obedient. Help us to be receptive. And may you be glorified as we receive the truth tonight. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice a word that's used in Hebrews chapter 12. It actually is used on several occasions throughout the book of Hebrews. And, you know, I've always thought it's funny when we try to sort of boil down a book of the Bible to a given or particular theme. While it's certainly true that any book of the Bible, you could probably find one preeminent truth above everything else. It's really a little narrow to try to say, well, this book is about this and this alone. When we talk about Hebrews, you know, we we often say it's the book of better things. And that's certainly true. 
but as we read through the book of Hebrews, there's a word that pops up over and over and over again, and we find it three times in our text that we've read tonight. I want you to notice it with me. Verse 2, the Bible says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, here's the word, endured the cross. Look down with me at verse number 3. The Bible says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And then verse 7, we find it again. It says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. I want to preach to you tonight on the topic of endurance. You know, we often say in our life, and I've said this before, and I, and I still agree with the sentiment of it, but I feel like it might be a little dismissive to a deeper truth. I've heard people say, well, well, praise the Lord, I'm not enduring the Christian life, I'm enjoying the Christian life. And I'll certainly say amen that the Christian life is to be something that is not to be begrudgingly uh, tolerated. It's not something that is to be suffered, though, of course, we will suffer a measure in our Christian life. But it's something we ought to be thriving and rejoicing and enjoying. God didn't put you here to be miserable. He put you here to praise him and to rejoice in him. But I would also say this, that there is a great danger in that perspective or in that turn of phrase that we sort of cast the notion and the concept of endurance in a negative light. Let me tell you something. If you're going to walk with Christ, you better get some endurance. If you're going to live a Christian life, and I'm not talking about enduring to keep your salvation. I'm glad my salvation is not predicated on my stick-to-itiveness. It's predicated on His sacrifice. I'm glad it's not uh, predicated on my, uh, you know, hanging in and holding on and sticking out and hanging through, but it's based upon what He did on the cross of Calvary. But if you're going to live like a Christian, if you're going to have a testimony that honors Christ, and if you're going to end this life without having to be ashamed of the life that you've lived, you're going to have to have some endurance about the way that you live. You're going to have to learn how to endure some things in your life. The word endure, it means to remain or to tarry behind, to abide and not flee, or to persevere and to preserve our standing. We could maybe define it in this simple term, it's to not quit. Can I tell you, I think we ought to honor the Lord with our attitude, but there are times when there's something to be said for just not quitting. I think we ought to strive to take big strides and steps and do great and wonderful things for God. And I believe we have a big God that does big things. But there's something to be said for just not quitting. Can I tell you that I've known a lot of Christians in my life. And the major problem that I see is not them doing so spectacularly that they burn out. But rather it's them behaving so apathetically that they fizzle out. The problem is not that they are not equipped for the mountains. The problem is they get bored and quit walking through the plains. And it's just a sheer lack of endurance in their life and a willingness when it's not easy, when it's not convenient to still continue to serve God because it's what's right and it's what's righteous and it's what he deserves. It's a lack of that that has led to the greatest rate of attrition in most Christians' lives. I mean, the reality is this. We got people and they're not losing their salvation because we don't lose our salvation. 
But we got people in this day, and I hope this isn't true of our church. I don't believe it's true of our church, but in Christianity writ large, we got more people quitting church and giving up and giving out and staying home than we've ever had throughout the history of the church. What's happening? Well, they lack endurance. Paul knew the importance of endurance in his life. He wrote at the close of his life to young Timothy, and he said, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I've fought a good fight. And then he said this, I have finished my course. He does not say that he raced faster than everyone else. He does not say that no one finished before him. But he could say this, I never quit. I kept on going until the race was run. In our text, we find this word endure in three different contexts. And I want you to notice them tonight. I want you to notice three things in our life that as Christians we need to learn how to endure. Look with me at verse number one. The Bible says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let me pause there and just say a word about that. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, if you're ever passing a rock on the road, you better kick it because you don't know when you're going to be going back down that road again. And this isn't my message Tonight, but I'll just tell you my perspective on that phrase in verse one is not that it is some congregation in heaven leaning over the balustrade of glory, beholding and gazing upon your behavior and mine. I hope they're not sitting up in heaven watching us. I hope they're sitting there with their eyes on the Lord Jesus. And certainly the scenes that we have in Revelation four and five and the scene that we have in Isaiah six and other places in scripture where heaven is described uh, they don't show everybody sitting around looking over the edge of the fish tank at us, but rather we find them seated at the feet of Jesus with their eyes fixed upon him. I hope that's what heaven is. I hope, hey, listen, you've had to look at me long enough. I hope you don't have to keep looking at me when you get to heaven. Amen. I don't think it's talking about that. I think it's describing how that in the Old Testament they were watched by a world that was intrigued by what was different about their lives. And saying that we likewise in this New Testament dispensation of grace are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses and says in light of that, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me say number one tonight, we better learn how to endure the cross. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. I don't endure the cross. I love the cross. But I want you to stop and consider what the cross is indicative of in this passage of Scripture. When we talk about the cross and what it means, there's really a few big ways that we think of it. Of course, we identify it with the substitutionary sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible does too. It talks about the preaching of the cross. And it's describing the telling of the gospel and the fact that he died a substitutionary death in our place on the cross of Calvary to pay our sin debt. And it wouldn't be inappropriate to talk about the cross in that line. And then sometimes we talk about the cross as our personal struggles or our personal difficulties. People will talk about bearing their crosses. And then there are times that we'll talk about the cross in the context of the crucified life. 
mortifying the flesh and mortifying the old man and our members of uncleanness and, and instead walking in the Spirit. And all those are appropriate. And if you wanted to make an application of them, I wouldn't thumb my nose at you. But can I just notice the context here? The writer of Hebrews says, hey, listen, you better run this race that is set before you. God has appointed a path for you. God has a will for you. And people are watching your life. It's not always easy, but don't quit. Run with patience the race that is set before you. And if you want to know an example of that, look at Jesus who ran the race that was set before him. And so in this context, I would say, that the cross sort of has three ideas associated with it. Let me say, number one, it deals with enduring in God's path. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you have a race. Jesus had a race. He ran the race that was set before him, and he did so in faithfulness, and he finished his course. He said on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. He didn't say it is finished because he was finished as a person. He said it is finished because the work that God had sent him to do was finished. He had told him in John chapter 4, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And on Calvary, he finished the work that God had given him to do. And so we could rightly say this, that the cross for him was the path of God for his life. The cross was the race that was set before Jesus. It was God's will for him. In other words, the Hebrews writer is saying this, that the Lord Jesus did not give up on the will of God in his life, but he instead saw it through to the very end. I tell you, in your life and mine, we better just steal our minds to this fact that the will of God is what's best and that plan B, that 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 uh, audible is unacceptable. Sometimes in our life we have sort of, and I, I sort of take issue with this. I'll be honest with you. And I, I know good preachers that have preached this way. But they'll talk about Romans chapter number 12. Uh, when it talks about, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And, and I've heard people describe it like, well, there's a, there's a good will of God and there's an acceptable will of God and then there's a perfect will of God. And they sort of describe it like there's tears of obedience to God. I got news for you. You're either living in obedience or you're not. And Paul in Romans is not saying, well, the super Christians, uh, they do the perfect will of God. And the, and the pretty good Christians, they do the good will of God. And, and the barely saved, they do the acceptable will of God. No, he's saying the will of God is all at once good and perfect and acceptable. And in our life, sometimes if we're not careful, man, we'll... We'll try to build a ripcord into the will of God. We'll try to build some off-ramp into the will of God and think to ourselves, well, you know, as long as I'm going to church and reading my Bible and raising my family in church, that's enough even if we know we're living in disobedience to God's will. But the truth of the matter is this. If we want to see God glorified in our life, we better commit ourselves to the will of God. The path of God in the life of Jesus was not an easy path, but he walked it nonetheless. He saw it to the very end. And you and I better learn how to endure in God's path. Then I would say this, that it not only deals with God's path, but the cross of Calvary. Well, let's just stop and look at verse 2 again. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, we often think of that in association to our personal faith. And I would say that that is not 
totally inappropriate. Certainly, I only have faith because the Word of God gave me something to have faith in. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And He is the Word of God. And certainly it's true that He's the finisher of my faith in the sense that my faith is vested in Him. And and I only know I'm going to heaven, not because I'm going to be living right at the very moment that some angry church member shoots me, but because He did a finished work and it's sufficient. But I don't really think that's how the Hebrews writer is saying it when he says our faith. I think he's speaking of of the dogma or doctrine of Bible Christianity. And he's saying this, he's the beginning of it and he's the end of it. Remember, he's writing to people that are being, they got their collar being tugged at by Judaizers. And they're being tempted to go back to Old Testament forms of worship, dead though they may be and, and empty and hollow though they may be. And he's reminding them that Christianity, though uh, understandably so, we've moved into a new dispensation and there is a new and better way. Jesus himself is not new. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. But what about the in-between? What's the story of our faith? Well, here's what it is. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, we could say this, that the cross was not just a path, but it was a process whereby the will of God was accomplished and the Son of God was glorified. There was no other way for God's purposes to be accomplished than by means of the cross of Calvary. So how do you know that, preacher? Because the only perfect person that ever lived, who was not just a perfect man, but was God in the flesh, God the Son, the Son of God, prayed in perfect union and harmony with God the Father and said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And he had already said outside the grave of Lazarus, I thank thee, Father, that thou always hearest me. The Lord heard that prayer and the Lord said, if it's possible, do it some other way. And yet still he went to the cross of Calvary. Tells me this, there was no other way. It took the cross to accomplish the purposes and plan of God. And I would just remind you that sometimes the will of God has some difficult processes in it. There are things, and I'm not going to take time to tell story after story, but undoubtedly I could and you could, of times that God did things in ways that we would have never asked for and we would have never prayed for and we would have never imagined. But when it was all said and done, we had to step back and say, just as He's always done, the judge of all the earth did right. He did all things well as He's always done. He knew what He was doing. But how often in your life and in my life has God not been able to let patience have her perfect work because we got nervous, we jumped, we ran, we bailed, we wouldn't let God complete the work, we didn't endure in God's process in our lives. I don't know what the process is going to hold for you. I know it'll, for Jesus, it held a cross and it held suffering and it held affliction. And in your life, I don't know what all it'll hold, but I do know this, you won't be served by giving out and quitting. You need to learn to endure in God's process. And then the cross in this passage reminds me that Jesus was enduring in God's promise. Notice how it says it in verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him. In other words, the Lord Jesus, when he was seated upon 
the throne. We often say this, or, or when he was hanging upon the cross, we often say, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And that's true. That's true. Certainly he saw us in our brokenness. He saw us in our depravity. But according to Isaiah 53, it, it, it was not in our, in our suffering that he saw us. He did not see us as, as sinners. He saw us as seed when he hung upon the cross. The Bible talks about him seeing uh, the seed of God and seeing the potential of what God could do in humanity. In other words, he didn't just die on the cross in pity for your brokenness. He died in the prospect of your blessedness. He died knowing what you'd be when you believed on him and knowing what he could transform your life into. And it was not just that he uh, hung on the cross, hangdog, miserable, suffering, uh, against his will, begrudgingly having to pay this sin debt. No, listen, he didn't hang on the cross as a victim, but as a victor. Uh, he didn't die till he was ready to die, till the work was done. Even the phrase, when the Bible says he bowed his head, denotes the idea of complete control. He didn't die, bow his head because he had no strength. He bowed his head because the work was finished. He commended his spirit to his Father. Never at one moment was he exhausted by the cross of Calvary. Why? Because he was enduring in the promise of God. He saw what God was going to do through the cross of Calvary. And in going to the cross, you say, preacher, didn't he despise it? Yes, he despised the shame, but he was looking forward and had joy for what God would do through it. Now the Bible describes him as sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, God had promised things. And you can read all about them through the Old Testament. Promises that were made regarding the Messiah and all throughout the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, time and again, he quoted many of those verses of Scripture. And time and again, the Holy Ghost, through the pens of the, uh, of the recorders of Scripture, would remind us of Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire ministry of the Lord Jesus was energized by the promises of God consistently. You don't find him doubting and you don't find him flippant and you don't find him questioning. Instead, you find him bold, leaning upon upon his father's promises, knowing that God never lies. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, of course he was that way. He's God and knew all things. But can I remind you that we know as much as he knew about what needs to be known to operate in faith? You see, he, he didn't he didn't endure in God's promises because he was God and knew all things, although that's certainly true. He endured in God's promises because he knew who God was and knew that God always keeps his promises. In other words, in your life and mine, you say, preacher, of course, it's because he was God. No, it's because he's God. It's because the father never lies. It's because God cannot lie. And in your life, you're going to have to learn to lean and trust on God's promises. There's going to be times that's all you're going to have. There's going to be times the doctor's going to shake their heads at you. There's going to be times that people are going to look at you and say it can never happen. It's impossible. There's going to be times in your life that sorrow and heartache is going to laugh at your teeth. And there's going to be times in your life that, that your flesh is going to, going to bear its teeth at you and grit at you and growl at you. And all you're going to have is God's promises. But can I remind you those promises are enough? In those moments, listen, don't, 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 don't abandon God's promises. Instead, endure in them. So we, we endure the cross. And then look with me at verses 3 and 4. 
The Bible says this, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So the first thing we have to endure is we must endure the cross, meaning God's path and process and promise in our lives. But then I would say, number two, we better learn how to endure contradiction. The Hebrews writer, he's writing to a group of people that are enduring contradiction. In fact, one of the places that he uses the word endure is early in the uh, book of, of Hebrews. He describes their their endurance in the face of affliction and persecution. And they were believing in Christ and taking a stand for Christ at a time and amongst a people that it was not easy to do so. The writer of Hebrews, who is Paul? We always say the Hebrews writer. I don't know who we're trying to spare their feelings of. It's Paul. Amen. But he's going to be mad. We get to heaven. He's going to be like, why didn't you give me credit for that? You knew I wrote that. Amen. But uh, Paul, when he writes about enduring contradiction of sinners, what he's trying to encourage them in in understanding is that if you're living for Christ, you need to anticipate a certain measure of opposition. The Bible says all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a lot of people that are in Christ Jesus that never never suffer persecution because they're not living godly. But if you live godly in Christ Jesus, and there's, by the way, a lot of people that live godly, whatever that terminology might mean to a lost person, that never never suffer persecution because they're not in Christ Jesus. But if you're in Christ Jesus, meaning you're born again, you're saved by God's grace, and you're living like it, you're living like a Christian, you're going to experience a certain measure of contradiction. Notice what Paul says here. First, he points to the precedent of enduring contradiction. For consider him, and he's speaking of Jesus, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Now, we oftentimes use the, the term such there as, as sort of a, of a limiting word, you know, like such as in a whole bunch. But I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. He's just got through describing the cross. And when he says endured such contradiction, he's not saying so much contradiction. He's saying such contradiction as the cross of Calvary was. In other words, that they contradicted him so much that they eventually nailed him to a cross and put him to death. And he's reminding these early New Testament believers that if they do that to our Lord, then they'll do it to us. I don't know when we got confused about what the world's opinion of Christ is. But somewhere along the line, I don't know if it was Hollywood made a movie or something, and and all of a sudden we got to thinking that the world was okay with the Christ of the Bible. But the reality is the world has always stood in opposition of Jesus Christ. Now, whatever this long-haired hippie thing is that they're parading across television is not the Jesus of the Bible. And by the way, that's no new thing, man. They've been doing that since the 60s and 70s in trying to present this sort of mystical Eastern guru version of Jesus that snowboards and drinks Mountain Dew, you know. And that's sort of the image they have of who he is. But that's never been the case. The the Christ of the Bible has always, always met opposition from this world. So much so that he said, the world hates me. Not just they don't understand me. Not just they're not on board yet. 
Not just they have mixed opinions. He said, the world's made up his mind about me and it hates me. And there's a clear biblical precedent to the fact that if you're living Christ in front of people, they're going to take issue with that. We shouldn't think there's something broken about our Christianity if the world has a problem with it. We should think there's something broken about it if the world doesn't. So there's a precedent for enduring contradiction. Then I see the pitfall of enduring contradiction. Say, preacher, you know, what's the danger? What's the problem? Well, here's the danger. Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Here's something we none of us like to admit. We care far more about other people's opinions than we'd ever admit to. I know, I knew that wasn't going to be popular when I said it. That's all right. Oh, no, you're one of those people that don't care what anyone thinks, I know. But the truth of the matter is, if we're not careful, we will allow the constant opposition of the world against Christ to have a wearying effect on us. You don't think so. How does it feel to be living in a world that seems like it is constantly trying to tear down Bible Christianity? Has it had an effect on Western Christianity? I'd say it has. <laughs> the other, the big scandal of the past week has been the Southern Baptists finally finding the Pauline epistles and discovering women shouldn't pastor. <laughs> it's funny. Everybody talks about independent Baptists fussing and arguing. All oh, them independent Baptists fighting all the time and everything. Hey, listen, I, I don't know of any big independent Baptist conventions where we was trying to decide if we believe women should pastor, but the Southern Baptists been fighting about it for months and really years now. And they finally all got together and decided Rick Warren's money wasn't worth it anymore. And they was going to just go ahead and kick him out and take a stand on something. And, uh, you know, I, you say, what do you think about it? Well, I guess it's all right. They still won't take a stand on tongues. They still won't take a stand on critical race theory. They still won't take a stand on uh, homosexuality and lesbianism. And they still won't. Uh, they, they don't even know if we have a Bible. So I, I guess it's good that they did what they did. I, I, I'm not against them making a right decision, but I don't know that it fixes any of the rest of the problems. But, I, you know, it, it's so funny. That's been the big scandal everybody's been talking about now for, for several weeks. And, and you know, you look at, at the compromises that Christianity has made, things that are unthinkable. You say, preacher, how did that happen? The world and the devil wore people down one inch at a time, just with the constant barrage. And if we're not careful, we'll allow that contradiction that we endure to weary us and we'll faint in our minds. But I like verse 4. I like it because I feel like God probably needs to talk to me this way from time to time. It says this, You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know, that is the King James Version of this phrase, dried up. You ever hear that growing up? Dried up. You ever hear that? Some of y'all just spaced out when I said that. You went back to dark places in your memory of whippings you got growing up. Verse 4 is God's way of saying, dry it up. In other words, he's not trying to be unsympathetic, but he is trying to say this, the measure to which you have endured contradiction comes nowhere near even the limit of what you're capable of and certainly doesn't come close to what our Savior experienced. Reminding us that we have experienced some protection while we've been enduring contradiction. If you ever want to get mad at God for letting bad things happen in your life, can I just remind you that he let far worse happen to his darling son because he loves you. And if you don't understand the things that happen, and I don't always understand the things that happen in my life or yours. 
But I'm always equipped with the wisdom and knowledge that I need to navigate it when I look at the cross of Calvary and am reminded of this simple fact that whatever affliction I may experience, it pales in comparison to what the captain of my salvation went through in suffering. I see that we need to endure contradiction. And then finally, and I'll be done, and you think I've got a lot more to preach, but I don't, so don't get nervous. Finally, I want you to notice verses 5 through 7. The Bible says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? We need to endure the cross and we need to endure contradiction. But if we're going to be a productive Christian, we're going to have to learn how to endure correction. We're going to have to learn how to endure the chastening of God. I have experienced this often as a pastor. Maybe you've witnessed it in Christians' lives. People prioritize something above the Lord. They either get out of church or they let sin get in their life or they make a decision they know to be contrary to God's will for their life. And then God does what every good father does. He chastens them. That then becomes their mantle of suffering and their excuse for quitting on church, quitting on God, and quitting on their Christian walk. It becomes a bone of contention in their life. And they'll then look at the Lord and say, well, Lord, if you love me, why'd you let this happen to me? The preacher, what did they do? They quit on God's chastening. God was chastening them, trying to bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness in their life. And instead of letting him do it, they got upset and they sulked and they walked away from the Lord. Notice a few things here. Notice, number one, the providential reason for chastening. I like this. Verse five gives us a biblical precedent from the Old Testament. Talks about the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. But then Paul gives us some reasons why God chastens us. The first is verse six. It's because he cares for us. The Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I don't go around whipping other people's kids. I've got a lot of reasons for that. But can I tell you one of the main reasons? Because I don't have to. Because they're not mine. And the law is not going to show up at my door one day with them. The law will show up at your door one day with them, but not my door one day. They're not mine. I love your kids. I love all the kids in our church. I do. I love my kids. I hope you love my kids. And, and I love all of them. But at the end of the day, there's only two children in this church I'm responsible for chastening. And I don't chasten them because I picked them out to bully them and I don't like them and I want to make their life miserable. I chase them because, unfortunately, I'm on the hook for them. And it's my responsibility. I do it because I love them. I won't belabor the point because I think everybody in the room knows it. That we discipline our children because we love them, not because we hate them. But you know the same thing's true of the Lord. You say, preacher, it's not fair. God's let this happen in my life. You know what would be even worse if he ignored you? You know what would be even worse if he didn't even care enough about you to work in your life? I don't always like when God brings hardship into my life, but I do have to praise him that evidently he's got a plan for me. Because if he didn't, he'd just be done with me. 
I see it's because he cares for us. But then verse 7, it says this, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Here's why he does it, because he claims us. Because we're his. It's his way of telling us that we are his. We have no question about it. We know we belong to him because he takes us to the woodshed so often. <laughs> I see the providential reason for chastening. And then verses 9 through 11 give us the painful reality of chastening. And I won't, I won't belabor this, but let's read it. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Amen. And we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. One of the things that I'm proud of in my parenting, I don't have much. But I've never looked at my child and told them the lie that it hurt them more me than more than it hurt them. If it hurts you more than it hurts them, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, man, chastening hurts. If it don't, you ain't doing it right. That's the truth. I've I've seen parents at times in life that they didn't chasten their kids, they chastened Adam. Their chastening turned into chasing. Amen. And it wasn't effective because it was not done in a measured, controlled, clear, deliberate way. When the Lord chastens us, he's not hitting a lick at us. He's not chasing us around the house with a flip-flop trying to beat us half to death. When he is chastening us, it is measured, slow, deliberate, and effective. But you know what it also is? It's painful. It hurts. But it's the only way to make a productive child. I'm talking about spiritually. It's the only way to make us what we ought to be. So in verses 12 and 13, here's what we see. We see the proper response to chastening. Wherefore, now remember, the wherefores are there for a reason. Wherefore, in light of all these truths, in light of the fact that God does it because he loves us and he has a plan for us and he's not doing it out of anger, he's not doing it for his pleasure but for our profit, in light of all that, here's what he says. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. <laughs> Have you ever went to discipline your child and they just acted like they died? That ever happened to you before? You ain't even got anywhere near them yet. And they just melt down and collapse. You know, you do that sometimes. I do that sometimes. God begins to put a little pressure in our life and all of a sudden we just fall to pieces. Sometimes God will chasten us in our life and we'll sulk about it and we'll have a bad attitude on the Lord about it and we'll let bitterness set in and all of that is counterproductive to the work of chastening God's doing in our life. I, if you grew up like I did, if you met your discipline with a bad attitude, you just got more discipline. You couldn't bad attitude your way out of your problems. You had to fix that attitude if you wanted things to get better. And you know that's so true with our God too. So what's the proper response? Well, it's to lift up the hands. The image is of a person who's sort of hangdog. 
Oh, it's so miserable. Oh, it's so tough. Oh, God's been so mean to me. Paul says, dry it up. Lift your hands up. Hey, listen, get your knees straight. Make your feet straight. Lift your head up. You better make sure you pick up and go on, because if you won't, why would God leave you here in the first place? I like what that last phrase, it says this, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. You ever wondered why when a person has an appendage die, and that happens from time to time. We had a football player years ago, old Inky, whatever his name was, had a had an arm in a game, a nerve, something happened, and that arm died. And, you know, most of the time when that happens to a person, they'll amputate that limb. And you know why? Because if it ain't going to function, it's just going to be in the way. And oftentimes it'd be a place for infection to set in. It'd be a place for other damages to occur. And so it's not totally uncommon if that limb has died for them to surgically remove it, to excise it from the body, because if they don't, it'll be in the way and it'll be a more hindrance than it will be a help. And here's what the Lord says about us when he chastens us. If we're unwilling to pick up and go on, we might just have to be taken out of the way. But that's not God's desire. God's desire is that we be healed and that we be restored. I've had times in pastoring where I've had to have hard conversations with people over things in their life. And I've often said to them, now, I don't want this to be the end. I want you to get this right and go forward. I want you to make it right and go forward. I want you to get it straight with the Lord, make it right with the church and go forward. And there have been times people have. There's been times they've not. And what a tragedy that is. You know why? Because there ought to always be room for healing. There ought to always be room for healing. And in your life and in mine, when the Lord chastens us, it ain't because he's done with us. It's because he's not done with us. So we better learn how to endure the cross, God's will for our life. Correction, God chastening us, and contradiction, the opposition of the world around us. If we don't learn how to endure those things, we're never going to maintain a testimony for him. I hope you've committed yourself to it. If you haven't, I hope you'll do it tonight. Let's bow together. The musician's going to come and play. Miss Connie's going to play for us. We're going to have a word of prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to meet with the Lord, to discuss with him anything he may have dealt with you about. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your promise. Bless this invitation. May we meet it with obedience and with open heart. May we behold you with open face, Lord, honesty and sincerity. And may you work in us. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.